0: So now that you're helping me focus on this, it's helping me to remember certain thoughts I've had about it for some time now, and it becomes pretty obvious that I need to, s- to state the following in this recording, that it doesn't look to me like this thing can just start running on its own. It's true. I've stated before, and I still hold to it, that the so-called atmospheric generation is taking place in the gap between the spheres. But that doesn't mean it doesn't need a kickstart to get it going. You know, like a whipcord on a, um, or what do they call the dynamo motor? Or what? I think it's. Uh, I, I think you studied it. Yeah, you did. You talked about it in a lawnmower, the kind of motor that's in a lawnmower. And so we, we use... A, well, actually, <laughs> what am I saying? The engine in our car needs an electric starter motor. Anyway, and that's what this thing needs. It needs a kickstart. So it probably needs a snap charge from a DC voltage source to get it going. One polarity applied to one sphere or tube underneath it and the other polarity to the other tube or um, sphere above it. And... um just for an instant just like running a PMH experiment just for an instant give it a shock shall we say of a certain adequate voltage to charge the Leiden jar that's the next thing in line connected to this thing at the tubing prior to the um, copper based transistor that's past the Leiden jar so the Leiden jar stands between the spheres and the copper-based transistor, all three in parallel with each other, um, creating a sort of double loop. Um, well, yeah, no, it creates a double loop, like a figure eight, because the lighting jar is in the middle, um, the uh, ionization between the spheres is at the top, and the copper-based transistors are at the bottom of the figure eight, if we're using a figure eight as an example Um, the transistors in the middle and the ionization at the top of the figure 8 because I always suspected though previously a different kind of variation of this idea that they were supplying DC voltage from the battery pack because one of the stories has it that he took out the headlights and he put the um, copper spheres inside the sockets where the headlights used to be and that suggested that the contacts of the headlights he was making use of. Okay, but it doesn't tell us whether or not it was consistent power being drawn from the battery or not. And he said that battery power was not inevitable, was not required to run the the car, uh, much less a larger pack of batteries. So it's possible I, I have to deviate from that initial thought by doing something that's more rational. Now that I have a better sense of what's going on, that, yeah, it was connected to the battery. That's why he took out the headlights and put the copper spheres inside the sockets of of where the headlights used to be. But it's only a shock charge, a snap switch that just gives it an instant of voltage from the car battery and nothing more. Now, when I did simulations, I found that when you do something like that, you, or anything similar like a pre-charged capacitor, you, because we're charging up the Leyden jar, so it's kind of the same thing. You don't want to give it more than 10 volts. And batteries in those days, car batteries, was 6 volts. Later we went to a double 6 volt, and then we just had 12 uh, built that way and sold that way. Because we got so many gizmos, probably, you know, uh, whatever the reason. Um, so it makes sense that it would have been 6 in that era, in that decade. Uh, 102 years ago, because um, you don't want to go <laughs> to 12. It's already um getting to be unsafe to get this overreactance behavioral phenomenon to occur. If you go down to femtovolts, if you know what a femto is, any any of you, um, it's a thousand times less than a picovolt which in turn is a thousand times less than a nanovolt, which in turn is a thousand times less than a microvolt, which is the environmental background voltage um, at the surface of the earth. And that's a thousand times less than a millivolt, which is a thousand times less than a volt. So that's a lot of (laughs) zeros, groups of threes, actually. Um, And so femto doesn't really work. Um, No, excuse me, below femto, it doesn't work. So, femto is kind of the boundary. Somewhere in there is the lower boundary. And 10 volts, i found, is about the upper boundary because if you go to 100 volts, it's too much. And that's what our AC system works on because it's effective at suppressing overreactants to occur. Now, Foster's Reactance Theorem is an article on Wikipedia that does talk about this uh, kind of in a roundabout fashion, I'm guessing, because it alludes to negative impedance Um, And that is wherein you use various impedances, reactive impedances and simple resistance in your favor, to your advantage. So instead of it getting in the way, slowing everything down, by putting it in the right place and by segregating your voltage dominant from your current dominant sections of the circuit, you can get the voltage to accelerate and self-amplify the reactive power. And you do that by magnetically coupling the two sides somehow, and putting your impedances only in the voltage side to increase your voltage and certainly not on the current side. You've got to keep your resistance down to a certain minimum and you usually find out what it is by experimentation. Um, That way, voltage will build up on the voltage side of the circuit in the voltage area of the circuit and current will also build up on the current side and you'll get power. I think I've covered that already. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. <laughs> Repeating myself. Yeah, just a snap switch, I think, is required because it's kind of ridiculous to think it'll start on its own. And I never really did simulations that started on their own anyway. It's impossible. you got to give it something. Um, but if you do everything just right, you don't have to give it much and not for very long is one way to do things. <laughs> there are others, <laughs> but it's one way, and I think that's how this thing operates. But the magic of keeping it sustained and self-running, once it gets started, is in the gap between the spheres. Okay? Good enough. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, the reason why the current shows up on the current side is because when you do your magnetic coupling, you don't do one-to-one. You do... um a step-down transformation in which the current side has less wind... Um, how does that work? <laughs> oh shit, I can't remember. Well, you're, you do a winding ratio difference between the two sides such that you've got greater current on one side of that magnetic coupling and uh, greater voltage on the other side so that it's a step-down voltage uh, and a step-up of current so that way you're able to get current manifesting on one side and voltage on the other um (laughs) shows how much i remember about step up and step down transformers i've forgotten it's been a while um anyway that's why you you're able to get the manifestation of power because you're merely increasing voltage yet you get the benefits of both voltage and current now i remember (laughs) the side of the transformer that's accentuating voltage has more turns because it has more resistance both inductive impedance and simple resistance it builds up more voltage meanwhile the other side is less turns and it builds up current dominating over voltage but you also of course want to change your winding size the wire gauge so that you don't want them to be the same in these types of circuit situations um, I'm just using a step-up or step-down transformer as an example, since it's a similar mechanism. But on the voltage side, voltage side you want to use a thinner wire. I, uh, what is that? A uh, hi, uh, higher gauge number. And then on the current side, you want to use a lower gauge number that's more stout, um, because it'll have less resistance. and I can't remember what some of my circuit simulations were, but I think I had to keep the resistance below what 100? a hundred, a tenth of an ohm. Um, no, no, it was fifteen. Was it fifteen ohms or fifteen milliohms? Yeah, it might have been fifteen, uh, 15 milliohms. I think in one particular example. I mean, that's pretty stout wire. And, and not and of, well, it was a very tiny co- coil. <laughs> oh, boy, was it tiny, the inductance. I don't even know if it's physically windable, but um, I think the inductance was more on the order of 100 nano henries, which is a ridiculously small coil. Anyway, um, or small inductance to expect out of a coil. Regardless, okay, I remembered my... <laughs> it takes a while my memory cells to kick in I'm sorry, sometimes I speak in general terms about a general concept and I mix it up with um, things that are pertinent to the device, the Amman device itself, um, and I switch back and forth, and, and that's kind of crazy. It, you probably uh, lose track of what I'm uh, talking about, it, <laughs> the way I hop around so much. Um, so that particular step-up, step-down transformation, I don't think it's anywhere in evidence in the Amon device at all because they only have, it only has one coil. Although it's subdivided into two coils, electrically it's one, um, whether or not each coil is a different gauge with respect to each other, now that would be a fascinating mystery or experiment, a curiosity, a fascinating curiosity to pursue to see if that changes the outcome in any way better or worse or neutral. Um, Since it does, there's really no other way that I can think of to connect the transistor to the coil, the barrel coil, without splitting the barrel coil into two... actually to two separate windings that are distinct from each other, even though they're wound together on the same barrel. But if there's no insulation on the iron wire, then it doesn't matter? Or does it matter? I don't know. I mean, they're going to be shorting out (laughs) every single millimeter of the whole winding is going to be shorting out with each other, so I don't know. Or did he code it somehow? You see, these are things I don't know and I can't really speculate. But with iron, though, I have generally always assumed that it's always bare because it doesn't matter. We're not trying to convey voltage across a length of wire anymore because we got higher resistance getting in the way. We're just trying to have the properties of iron when exhibiting the magnetic field of that iron winding. So it's a little bizarre because in essence all he's really done is custom built an iron barrel with sheet metal but in his case it wasn't sheet metal he used iron wire which is a lot easier to work with. I mean essentially that's the way it appears on the face of it. and also to shape a magnetic field around the other components of the circuit that are interior to the barrel that we don't see, that I am speculating, exist. Uh, Aside from that and the properties of the iron, there's nothing much else to say about that coil uh, because it's probably not um, insulated on its surface with any kind of substance. It's just bare iron wire. By the looks of the picture and by the... Presumption that it has anything to do with Nathan Stubblefield. Okay. I'm sorry, my mistake. My powers of visualization are so poor. I don't know why I thought it had to be two coils split in the middle in order to satisfy the connections between the emitter and the coupler. Um, it's really bizarre that I, I thought that way. Really, only one coil is needed. Um, and it just goes around. One terminal goes to the emitter lead, and the other is the um, collector lead, and uh, the aluminum is the gating lead, Um, but it's just one iron coil, I'm sorry.